Welcome to Nutrition Navigator's podcast, bringing nutrition and wellness to you. And welcome back to our second episode in the Food and Culture series, where we are hosting different individuals across campus and our community that have ties to different cultures to learn and celebrate. Culture is for everybody, and it's about the celebration of that culture, even if it's not your own, it can be celebrated by us all. We're exploring the different cultures through food because food is the story of who we are. My name is Ashley Monroe, and I'm one of the nutrition counselors at Campus Health and the advisor for this program. On today's episode, we have Dominique Henry. She is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in adult education from Northern Arizona University and a bachelor's of nutritional science from the University of Arizona. As a member of the Diné Navajo Nation, Dominique respects and understands the importance of cultural sensitivity when providing communities and patients with nutrition education. As a dietitian, she works with many interdisciplinary professionals and community partners with the goal of maintaining and reducing chronic disease risk and disease-related complications. She has developed training materials, co-facilitated support groups, organized and conducted various workshops and classes throughout the Tucson area with the overall goal to empower individuals to take ownership of their health through education and ongoing support. This was such a fun conversation with Dominique and we're excited to share it with you. Now let's welcome Dominique to our show. Hi Dominique, thank you for being here. Do you wanna tell us a little more about who you are and what you do professionally? I'm Dominique Henry, I'm the dietitian with the Pasquayaki Tribe. I'm a tribal member with the Navajo Nation, and I've worked with the uh, Pasquayaki tribe for about three years now. Um, that's something pretty common in a lot of uh, tribal communities, having a community dietitian. That just means that um, I kind of embed myself in the community. I do multiple uh, community events, do outreach, education, uh, a lot of like staff training to help uh, boost knowledge and nutrition to tribal staff members. Uh, and then, of course, I do uh, one-on-one consults with patients in the clinic. So I kind of all over. But, yeah, I've gotten this field uh, because I grew up on the Navajo Nation, saw a lot of, you know, the diabetes really developed there. My uh, grandfather lived with us, and he was uh, he was really affected by it. So I saw that firsthand. So I decided, you know, how can I contribute to my community? And, and this is uh, the field that I landed in. So. Okay, very cool. And um, how would you define your culture? My culture, so we're just having a discussion how deep that question is. So this <laughs> this question really embeds who you are and, and where you grew up. I identify as being a, a Navajo woman, uh, although I, I have ties to uh, my family in Mexico, but born and raised on Navajo Nation. So the culture I grew up really surrounds most of that culture, which is, you know, very traditional in different ways, I guess, from other cultures. But for us, it's, it's kind of like a lot of family-oriented events. Things are just really close-knit, really, with your family. Uh, and it, 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 I think it's difficult for a lot of people to come out of that culture to maybe join a, a bigger place like the University of Arizona where you're embedded with other people and you have to uh, be open to learning about other people and sharing your own culture and seeing where maybe you have similarities and then that's how you can build relationships. A really good point of like coming into a bigger community or just a different community and finding ways to connect with people and not and staying true to ourselves or remembering what's important that we like bring with us and then that's really valuable uh, as well. 
thank you for explaining your culture and, and where you grew up and all of those things and family being really the, the tightness, tight knit community and importance around family. And because with family comes, well, with everything comes eating and food and celebration. How important is food in your culture? Or what are some traditions there? Oh, it's ex- extremely important. There's uh, specific foods for different events. Um, for example, when you, when you get married, you share from the basket, you know, a, a cornmeal with your husband. So think of it kind of the equivalent of the cake, you know, when oh, the couples yeah. get married. Sort of like that. Um, but there's a lot of symbolism in the whole act. Um, when my husband and I got married, we had to reference my grandfather at the time who was, who was with us. And he, it, it was a whole lesson in itself. So you're continuously learning about your culture because yes, you're exposed to certain things as you grow up, but there's other things that you encounter until you've reached, I guess, that stage. So like mm-hmm. a wedding, you're not going to really, really know what's going on until you've experienced it yourself. And you'll say, oh, what is, why are we doing this? Why is that? You know, mm-hmm. um, there's significance of directions. You know, you, you pray in certain directions and there's a, there's a way that you do that. Everything has a, has a spirit, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. so you kind of respect everything around you. So that's, yeah, culture very, like, I, I feel like I, I'm always learning something new. And I think that that should be true for all of us because yeah. so many of us, many indigenous cultures, especially, I think a lot of our cultural values are, are getting lost, um, not just language, but just certain practices. So I would encourage anybody listening to, you know, talk to their elders or family members who practice, um, you know, cultural things and just document those things or practice it yourself. And that way you can pass that along because a lot of indigenous culture is, is mainly just passed on verbally. Yeah. It's not written. And that's a, so two things that I thought of when you were saying that is this, well, A, how does it become difficult to keep some of those traditions going? Like, why do we feel the need to, I guess, not as, as people who show up in this world, like, why, why do we forget or not pay homage to those traditions, do you think? I think the number one would probably be a cultural barrier. And a lot of, like I said, a lot of this is passed on verbally. Yeah. So if the generations aren't speaking the same language, we're going to lose a lot of that. Another thing is we mentioned earlier assimilation. Mm-hmm. We had, we're talking about that off camera. But it, some people really assimilate and then they just sort of put the cultural aside and they try to assimilate to whatever, I guess, society that they're trying to embed themselves into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they lose that, um, or they just move away. You know, they move away. They have families. They're they're growing up away from the culture and that family environment, and they just don't. They just lose it that way. Yeah. So maybe that's like a permission slip to that it's okay, and it can be really make us unique and 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 cool and and have these great experiences to remember that we can can be respectful and keep hold of our traditions because they make us different and which is, which isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were saying that too, it made me think of you don't learn these, some of these things until you experience them yourself. I think too, when you're kind of brought up in a culture, it just is like a way of living. You're like, I Mm -hmm. feel like maybe you think like, Oh, everybody does this one thing or everybody does this. And then you come to find later, like, that's something really specific to our culture, our family. And I think that's sometimes a fun realization that I know, I know I, you know, was raised in a different culture than my husband. And so when he comes to family events or when 
we do all these things. He had never heard of, seen, tasted all of these things before. And so that was kind of a fun thing to share with someone you love. This is my culture and this is why we do what we do. Yeah, I love that. I love sharing cultural things, not just my own, but I like meeting new people. And again, coming, circling back around to food, Mm -hmm. it seems like that's what connects us. You're like, we all eat. Teach me what you eat and why, like how to eat it properly. I have a really good friend of mine who is Chinese. So we'll go out to eat and she's taught me properly how you're supposed to eat certain dishes, right? Because oh, a lot wow. of Chinese food that we are used to eating are, are very Americanized. So she's taught me a lot in that aspect. And then here working um, with the Pasayaki tribe, I've, I've really enjoyed it because I because of that sharing, you know, there's a, they're still very cultural here as well. It's a small community, but, you know, the people I talk to here, we, I say, wow, you, you know, this cultural practice you do is very similar. So what we do is not exactly the same, but the steps and the processes are very similar. Um, and of course, there are, there are similarities in food. So that that's been fun to um, to share these cultural commonalities. That's so true. I'll never forget. I went to culinary school, and I'll never forget in international cooking. I had this realization one day that like every culture around the world has a very similar way of making what here we would consider like lasagna. Mm-hmm. Um, or like in Italy, maybe they would consider like lasagna, but like all these different cultures have a way of making this, this layered dish, this layered casserole. And it's different in Greece than it is in, than in, you know, than in Mexico. And like, it's, but it's, it's kind of the same technique and this underlining of like, this is the process. And I found that way with a couple other dishes that were in international cuisine. Like we all have our own way of doing this, but like the thread is very same the same does that make sense yes it does <laughs> okay. i've noticed that as well and, and like i said that's that comes with the sharing of culture yeah. so again encouraging people to reach out and i have noticed this that when you kind of go out and you come from a certain culture you tend to gravitate to people like you but yeah to definitely take this opportunity while you're at uh, a large place like the university to immerse yourself in other cultures and then partaking in, in, in podcasts like this to learn more about other cultures. Yeah. So then that'll, you know, bring everybody together and, and connect us. But yeah, that's definitely, I have seen that myself, the yeah. minorities and cultures. <laughs> and you mentioned the tradition around the marriage ceremony. Is there any mm-hmm. other specific things that you learned throughout your childhood or your upbringing that were really kind of focused on food or like a food, another food memory that you have from growing up? Yeah. So another, another big one that's pretty common I think still a lot of people do it is when a baby laughs you throw a party and you you have a you have a big meal and there's something specific to you you have a little piece of salt like a think of like a salt chunk before you grind it in a Uh a salt grinder they kind of look like that it's it's a specific kind of salt and what you do is as a guest come um, they'll have a prayer and and what we'll do is we'll put a piece of this salt in the baby's hand and then it's kind of like the baby's giving it to you and that's to symbolize generosity so the baby grows up to be generous. So and that's celebrated with the with the baby um laughing. But yeah, usually it's a big party. So you come that's you're so just cool. like, Oh, what did you laugh? We'll have to party. And and whoever the person who hosts the party is the person who made the baby laugh. Oh, so it's how kind cool. of it's kind of funny because people will come in and the baby will start smiling and then they'll jump back and say, Well, did this baby laugh yet? Because I don't want to host this party. <laughs> So that's a fun one, and I have a small child, so we're planning her her first laugh party um, in a few weeks. So that's so cool. 
couple of different milestones. This salt, does it? you said it symbolizes generosity, mm-hmm. and it's a special kind of salt. Does it have a, a name? Um, you know, I don't know. I'll have, okay. have to ask. Have the salt. I'm sure it does. Yeah. Uh, but it's what the salt we've used is from actually Salt Lake. Ah. Um, one of my aunts went there one year and she brought back this huge jar of salt. It's, it's inside of this jar that they yeah. gathered from Salt Lake and it's like a really pretty pink kind of color. That looks cool. kind of like that Himalayan pink salt. Uh huh. It's from here in the States. That's really cool. So, um, how does the understanding of the history of indigenous oppression, um, displacement, and dispossession really play out in food and traditions around cultural food? Oh, this is a big one. This is getting a lot of conversation right now. So, I think when people think of Native American cuisine, like the first thing that pops in people's mind is fry bread, you know? And you're just like, oh, that's very traditional, but you're just like, well, not really. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, that was a result of the base, basically the concentration camps were all put in to take off reservation and we're given these, um, com- like, uh, what do they call them? Like commodity food boxes. Right. Which are still current now, but that was the result. So from that, you know, again, being in the nutrition field, you're seeing a lot of diabetes on reservations. They're, they're really going back in history and saying it was probably a result of the, you know, tribes being moved off of their homelands. Yeah. Given these boxes of, of processed food, you know, they, a lot was taken away. So metabolically, we haven't really caught up with all of this processed food. They're seeing a lot of really young, I see a lot of young children, pre-diabetes or diabetes, fatty liver disease. And a lot of it is contributed from high intake of, of just highly processed food. And so there's, there's kind of that traumatic history. But from that, I think a lot of of indigenous people are trying to grow from that saying, okay, that happened. This is where we are now. We need to kind of go back and refine our roots and, and try to reestablish whatever those traditional foods were. I've noticed that that's been a really big thing. Um, a lot of online trainings, a lot of books and cookbooks have been coming out of native chefs kind of really trying to bring back cultural foods. Where I'm from, there, there's been a lot of um, movement on like trying to promote farming again. Mm-hmm. Farming used to be a really big thing. Um, stopped, stopped from, for various reasons, but um, obviously indigenous uh, food would be probably corn, different varieties of corn. So I always tell people who are trying to, you know, really watch their blood sugars, like corn is not, it's not terrible. It's, you know, we have to be selective of what kind of corn we're getting. How we're incorporating it in our diet, combining it with other foods, and it's fine, right? No, no food is particularly terrible, especially if it's a whole food. So, but yeah, I feel like indigenous cuisine is sort of going to have a resurgence. At least I hope so. Mm-hmm. That's been the hope from a lot of these people and trainings that I've been going to, is they're really trying to empower people to promote their own cultural food and not necessarily change it up too much, but keep it um, keep it healthy. I wonder too if it comes with this. Not a realization because people always knew kind of, or maybe they didn't, I don't know, the history around why food became inaccessible in communities that had such abundance and access at one point, but literally as the result of oppression and literally the result of displacement, you know, these were taken away. And what resulted was some of these chronic conditions, these chronic health conditions. And then we look to communities and say, well, you're not making good choices, but it's like, well, but they don't have good choices. And so that's a very big difference 
And I think it puts that individualism lens on it when it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Like what you are, what you're saying is getting back to like, what were the foods that were grown when this wasn't showing up in as prevalent as it is now? Because this occurred out of environmental reasons, not because of personal responsibility. Yeah. I just, I think that's what frustrates me. The narrative, that narrative, it's someone else's in any culture. Like it's their fault. They did it to themselves. It's like, well, I feel like that's not true at all. So mm-hmm. let's talk about why that's not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's another thing going into healthcare. You have people of color, any color, I think, going to see healthcare providers and they're reprimanded for not, or for, for whatever condition they have, right? Or they're stigmatized totally. saying, you are this. So, and, and like I said, these pop, in our population, a lot of diabetes is saying, you are diabetic, but now they're trying to, we're trying to change the language to say, well, you're a person, that, you know, who has diabetes. Right. This, this is a condition you have. That's not who you are. Trying to trying to separate those two things, but yeah, definitely there is a history of that. Totally, and I think if we have any like nutrition students listening, when you read in the textbook, like such and such group of humans is susceptible to this condition, I think as students we take that as face value and we forget to ask, well, why is that? And I think that why is so much richer of an answer. Why is certain groups more susceptible to certain conditions? Because they're usually, if you dig deep enough, there is a reason. I thank you for answering that because I know that's like a hard question, but at the same time, like I I, I totally agree that it's becoming, I don't know, people took the blinders off. This movement towards understanding the why around different cultures is needed and important and going to give us more information to be better Mm -hmm. health providers too. And that kind of answers the question, I think, Sabrina, do you think there's misconceptions about food in your culture? But do you think there's other ones? Do you think there's other misconceptions around food Mm -hmm. within the indigenous population? I mean, I guess just like I said, going back to the fry bread, I think that that's probably the biggest one. Totally. It's usually Indian fry bread, so that's what people go to. So that would be the biggest thing. There's, there's more, I guess, would be the big conception, the misconception would be like, there's more than just fry bread. Right. So I, I would say fry bread is still going to be a part of Native cultures. Mm-hmm. It has a history, but I think moving on from there, I would say that we, we should look beyond that and say, what else is there? What else is there? Do you have a favorite? Do you have favorite foods that you have learned to cook either from learning them from your community or patients or in your own family do you have favorite dishes that are yeah so one one big one um blue cornmeal it's like a you can make a hot cereal out of it so there's a special way to prepare it there's a special ingredient so one of it's funny i've seen it served some places commercially um even at the hospital there there's a hospital here in tucson that'll serve it because there's a lot of native people from the reservation that come Mm -hmm. to for services but it doesn't quite taste the same because okay. they're they're missing this ingredient. <laughs> so there's like this secret ingredient, and it's, it's ash from cedar. So they it's carefully it's carefully burned, and they collect it. And um, or excuse me, yeah, is it cedar juniper? Excuse me. So you sprinkle this in there, and there's really limited research. I found a paper from I think it's the University of New Mexico that said that that adding that to the cereal helps it digest well, and I guess it was showing it. It helps improve blood sugar regulation. Oh. 
So it's kind of funny. I I, I feel like the more I look into certain any indigenous food, really, mm-hmm. you kind of go back and you're just like, wow, you know, we knew that this was good for us. Or combining these foods did something in in our bodies, you know. So like I said, limited research on that, but. I did find that a few years ago, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting that they looked into that. So that's one. There's a lot of foods that uh, we were taught how to kind of go out and, and cultivate for ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. to recognize edible plants. So one of the one of them is tea. There's a certain tea. There's a plant that grows kind of like chamomile. Okay. So it grows. You have to know what it looks like, and you're like, oh, that's what that is. I can put some dry, you know, clean it and dry it, and you can make some tea. Oh, another big one is pinyon. So pinyon nuts. So again, you'll see the little ones. Yeah. So you've heard of pine nuts. Oh, uh huh. Similar to that, but these are from pinyon trees. So Do they taste like the same, like buttery or? Yeah, kind of buttery, kind of sweet. I feel like it has very like a cashew type oh, okay. taste. Yeah, but it's the again, you have to know which season you can pick it in because you you can't pick them every year. It's kind mm-hmm. of like has a some people say three or four years. And then some of the elders would say you'd never pick them after it, the first snow because then it's like it's, they're not going to be good. So there's certain times of the year and where to go to get them. A lot of people still do that now. You'll mm-hmm. just you'll be driving through the mountains and you'll just see people pulled off the road and you're like, oh, I know what they're doing. <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's a it's a tedious job of like going and picking little seeds. Um, but yeah, those those are a few a few things. That's cool. Do you feel like? families cook together or that children are really involved in the in the oh, kitchens yeah. of growing up yeah so i i remember growing up and contributing whatever and whatever the process was i always tell people um we used to my grandparents were sheep herders so they they raised uh, hundreds of sheep and it was for the wolf because my grandmother she wove rugs so she wove rugs and then she would also go out and she would you know pick the certain plants that would add color, and she would do the dye herself. So all of it from the ground up. But I remember occasionally we would butcher one of the sheep for a meal, like a big meal, right? So the whole family come together, but everybody would help. It was a process. So even the youngest of kids, we would be helping to clean certain parts of, of you know, the parts of the, the sheep that was that was harvested. We would be cleaning it, and I was thinking, if anybody drove by that was not familiar, it would be like, what are these children doing with all of these animal parts, you know? But it was normal, you know? Yeah. You just, you did your contribution. I was, must have been like six or seven. You're, you're playing part in that. You're helping make bread, you know? Yeah. Somebody's building a fire, or you're going to haul water, because a lot of places didn't, and even still to this day, don't have running water. So there was jobs for everybody to do. We were, we were very, we were kept busy. So everybody has a job to do, but yeah. And I tried to do that now even. So with my own children, I try to have them do um, the smallest task. So if it's tearing up lettuce for a salad or, you know, pulling grapes off of the stem and washing them. So they're, they're, they're used to being in the kitchen. My daughter has favorite jobs that she'll do, and there's other things that she doesn't have a ton of interest in doing. So we're still oh, yeah. working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've learned that too. I'm like, okay, you like to do this, you don't like yeah. to do that. So, which is funny that even at a young age that they have preferences around that. Yes, yeah. very interesting. <laughs> so, are there any locations or places that sell or make food in Tucson that you would say? were indigenous foods or that you would like to go to to enjoy indigenous foods? Cafe Santa Rosa on on South 6th in South Tucson. 
So they, um, I believe they're te- they're autumn or teo. So, but you know, they'll make the fry bread for you if you want to try that. Their their cultural food, I think, has more Mexican influence. Yeah. Here in Tucson, I think they're the only one that I can think of right off right offhand. You mentioned some cookbooks and stuff. Is there, if people were interested in learning some of these, not that they'll be necessarily able to do the farming mm-hmm. practices or those kinds of things, but if they're interested in kind of those combination of ingredients and things like that. Yeah, there so there's, go-to. yeah, there's one cookbook. It's called a Sioux Chef. It's spelled like the Sioux Native Tribe. So that's a good one. There's a Instagram post that I follow. I think her name is the Kitchen Curandera. So she really practices kind of trying to non-westernized food so she's pretty good she's sometimes she'll pose videos and things like that so those are the two main ones right That's now great. yeah there's, there's a ton those. yeah there's a ton on social media once you look up like indigenous chef yeah so there's there's a, there's tons out there i just can't think of them right off the top. no oh, yeah totally <laughs> and if you think of any we can always put them in the show notes for students to kind of peruse and okay um and just get that good exposure and just kind of Learning about things that are different from your own culture can be really yes. cool and inviting. Um, mm-hmm. And that maybe speaks to this last question is, is like, if students are interested, maybe we'll ask it this way. Like, if students who come from indigenous backgrounds or indigenous cultures that are here on campus, I know you said taking advantage of the big community is one thing, but w- what about if they're interested in, like, what advice or resources do you have for them being on a bigger campus? How can they hold on to their culture? Does that make sense? Okay, so you maybe want to encourage them to, like you said earlier, you want to you want to still retain who you are. Yeah. And then as part of reaching out and kind of expanding your own horizons by meeting different other different people, is to share what you know. It could be the smallest. It could be the smallest thing. So from there, I feel like whatever you're sharing, people start asking you questions. You ask me about the salt. What's it called? I don't know. I'm gonna go find out. That opens that door. Mm-hmm. People will start asking you questions. What does this mean? You do this. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, but I don't know what it means. I'm going to go find out, you know? Because again, you said you grow up in this culture, you just sort of take it for granted. Mm-hmm. These things happen without you really thinking why. But as you, when you pull yourself out of that and you meet other people and they start asking you questions, and then you, then it makes you think, you're like, I don't know why we do that. Let me go find mm-hmm. out. Or let me go ask somebody. Then you you increase your own personal knowledge, and then hopefully that's the way we keep these cultural practices alive. It like helps you learn more about yourself, even yeah. which you could argue is what college is all about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. That's really good. That's a really good point. I did have one small question. Okay. Would you say that there's any staple spices that you use specifically in indigenous foods? Sadly, just salt. <laughs> yeah my husband's always like telling me he grew up with just really bland food and it wasn't till till we met that we learned like he's like i didn't know steak could be good you know he didn't know cornbread was supposed to be good so no not <laughs> it's amazing what a little folk can do <laughs> I know. but then some people just go too crazy with it you're just like no taste your food first and then add the salt don't add the salt first also a good tip. But um, yeah, no, unfortunately not really. All right. So um, that kind of concludes the 
um, indigenous kind of questions, um, specifically with indigenous foods. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions um, that we ask all of our guests here on the podcast. So the first one would be, if you could only eat three foods ever again, what would they be? Oh, well, I did mention pinyons earlier. So I would say that if you've never tried it, kind of try to see if you can find some. Peaches, I love peaches, and then probably beans. Yeah. We had a dinner last night, and all I kept thinking was, gosh, and we're probably going to eat it, the leftovers tonight. But we, d- I, I wish I had made beans with it because I was eating it. I'm like, this could have been so much better with beans. So tonight we're having, tonight we're having refried beans with it because that's what it was missing yesterday. <laughs> yeah, they're so versatile. You throw some in a salad, bean yeah. burrito, um, you know, just beans by itself. We had taco salad last night. It had beans in it, so beautiful. We have beans like. At least three times a week. Do you have a favorite type of bean? Oh, I love them all. Black oh. beans, pinto beans. Those are probably my two favorites. But yeah, I like tons pinto. of beans out there. Mm-hmm. My husband doesn't like black beans. I've learned over time that if I make chili, if I don't put black beans in it, if I just do like pinto or kidney or navy, like he's more likely to enjoy it. Because for whatever reason, the black beans, he doesn't, and those are some of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, cannellini beans too. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorites too. So creamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we could talk all day. Right. <laughs> all right. And then uh, my second question would be, would be um, do you prefer breakfast foods or dinner foods? Oh, goodness. Well, breakfast foods definitely on the weekend, dinner foods during the week. <laughs> it's like less hectic in the morning yeah. on, on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Just a, a leisure breakfast. <laughs> you don't have to rush or run out the door. You're just like, all right, I'm going to sit down and enjoy this. Do you have a favorite weekend breakfast meal that you make? So we'll have uh blue cornmeal, the the cereal. Um, we've experimented with that and we've done muffins and pancakes. So yeah. Again, special special occasion food. All right. And then my last question is if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh goodness, three people. Well, I probably would have my grandfather. People. I think Jilly, Jimmy Fallon would be fun to hang out with. Ooh, that's <laughs> And see the third person. What do you hoping? Oh my goodness. Well, this was such a, a like a great conversation. Thank you for for opening your experience and your expertise up to us and our students. And I just think they're gonna really enjoy this conversation. And I know part of talking about food and culture is asking people to be vulnerable. So I just appreciate appreciate that so much. And I know I sh- our students will too. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank, thank you no so much. Thanks. All right. So bye. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Please share with your friends and connect with us on all our campus health social channels. As always, you can email us at chs-nutritionnavigators at email.arizona.edu to submit your questions and comments about the show. We're so excited to bring to be bringing you the food and culture series and hopefully you enjoyed this conversation with Dominique as much as we did. We're sponsored by Campus Health and a program in health promotion and preventive services. We wanna thank Dominique for coming on the show and taking the time to talk with us about her culture and all of the fun, interesting things that came up throughout her lifetime around exploring her own uh, background. Our food and culture series is in partnership with the diversity and inclusion committee here at Campus Health, where we aim to learn and grow as individuals and celebrate our differences and the ways we are the same. Next up, we have Joshua Hamilton from African American Student Affairs coming on to talk about his journey through food and Southern food in particular and growing up in Southern Texas. 
until next time, be well, Wildcat.